Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage today comes from the book of Mark, chapter 11, verse 15 through 19. Listen for what God is saying. Then they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, it is not written. Is it not written? Thank you. Is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teachings. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. May God add a blessing to the reading, our hearing, and living out of the scripture. Amen. Good morning again. Uh, In case you wandered in late, no shame. My name is Emily McKinley, and um, I have the great joy of serving um, as the executive pastor of Urban Village Church and uh, of seeing so many familiar faces that um, uh, I have been able to journey with over my time when I was um, the pastor of this site. Um, As we prepare our hearts and minds to receive what it is that God would say to us today, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. God, we are grateful for this time to come together to... um, open our hearts and our minds to what it is that you might say to us today, um, the ways that you might perhaps comfort us or challenge us, affirm us, or cause us to think a little bit more deeply. Um, We ask that whatever that response might be, that we might lean into it with faithfulness and trust that you are at work within us and around us, um, and that you have something to show us and a way to strengthen us for your work in this world. And so speak through me in spite of me um, and uh, clear away the clutter in our hearts and our minds so that we might be present in this moment to receive um, what it is that your spirit is whispering to us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, this story today uh, shows up in all four of the Gospels, which is uh, a pretty good uh, indication, um, according to people who know such things, that this actually pretty much probably happened. Um, The passage occurs uh, actually a little bit uh, after this time of the year. Um, It's the week before the Passover meal, and all who can travel are streaming to the center of the party, Jerusalem. Now, like any giant Lollapalooza-esque party, there was a system and a process uh, uh, to process as many people as possible to kind of keep them in order and keep them moving. It was about as straightforward and laid out as um, the choices in a sandwich-making line at Subway. You've got your bread, your size, your meat options, condiments, and other toppings. Uh, The next thing you know, you're walking out the door holding a plastic sleeve with a six-inch turkey on honey wheat with lettuce, tomatoes, Dijon, mustard, pepperoncinis, and olives. It was pretty straightforward and hassle-free. Now, everyone knew how this worked. You came into town, you checked into your Airbnb before heading to the temple, 
And once you got there, the first thing you did was uh, change your Roman coins for temple coins. And then you go to the sacrificial um, animal table for a spotless lamb or a goat or if you're strapped for cash, a dove. Um, you take a number, and when it's called, you go into the sanctuary to have your animal slaughtered to atone for your sin. Boom, boom, boom. On your way out, maybe you uh, pick up a, I went to Jerusalem, and all I got was atonement t-shirt, right? <laughs> the process had been worked out so well and for so long um, that the, a kind of a whole sort of religious industrial complex had been built up to service those needs. It wasn't exactly like people were doing anything bad. Um, they were just trying to help observant pilgrims get through worship and atonement in as orderly and efficient a manner as possible. It was so convenient, you barely had to think about it. You could go through the motions half asleep. And that was the problem. Now, if turning the tables was all Jesus did, folks might be able to chalk it up to just some crazy guy. Uh, but it wasn't the act, actually, that made him dangerous. If you look again, um, you'll see that our passage says, the chief priests and legal experts regarded him as dangerous because the whole crowd was enthralled at his teaching. He was dangerous because the whole crowd was enthralled at his teaching. People were listening. They were captivated. Now, the tables just got people's attention. The real threat was in his teaching. So what was he teaching? It says, he taught them, hasn't it been written? My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a hideout for crooks. Now, here Jesus is quoting two different prophets. The first is um, Isaiah 56. Um, which says, the immigrants who have joined me, serving me, and loving my name, I will accept their entirely burned offerings and sacrifices on my altar. My house will be known as a house of prayer for all peoples. In other words, these practices and this vision of a life-giving, liberating, loving, and transformative way of being in this world isn't just for us, it's for everyone, Isaiah is saying. But y'all have created so many structures and set up so much red tape, made it so complicated for them to get to me. You have actively worked against my intentions. But not only that, he's saying, you have made the whole thing cheap. You have made my name cheap. And this is then where Jesus quotes the second prophet, Jeremiah. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, and then come and stand before me in this temple that bears my name and say we are safe? only to keep on doing all of those detestable things. Do you regard this temple, which bears my name, as a hiding place for criminals? I can see what's going on here, declares the Lord. In other words, you don't get to claim sanctuary for your misdeeds, and you don't get to come here and pay me in dead goat so that you can feel better about going back to be the same fool you were before you came in the door. That ain't how this works. You think I'm looking for more goat? God is asking. No, I'm looking for more of you. More of you. I want to see you fully alive, fully transformed, not just getting by from spiritual paycheck to spiritual paycheck. Now, Jesus grew up going to the temple. He had fallen in love with the teachings of his traditions at a young age. There's a passage in one of the Gospels that talks about how at the age of 12, he was so enthralled with the teachings that the rabbis were engaged in that his family was three days out of the city before they realized he was gone. They had to come back and find him sitting at their feet. He loved it. He loved the tradition. He cared about how it was designed to govern and guide his people towards a more life-giving, liberating, and loving way of being in the world. And so when he saw this tradition, which was designed for transformation, become nothing more than a vehicle for transaction, he wasn't just disappointed. 
he was angry. He was angry at the money games the religious leaders were playing and the way that it hurt the poor and widowed, the ones that this tradition was designed to protect. He was angry at the way that it had been twisted and abused, hollowed out and gutted until all it did was just prop up the status quo. Why are we doing this? Why are we even here? He was angry at the priests and leaders who let it happen and dismayed at the way his people had just fallen asleep at the wheel, allowing themselves to go through the motions half asleep, half alive. Jesus was trying to get them woke, so he woke them up. And that is what made him dangerous. Getting people woke means that it gets pe makes people dangerous. And so it's also what we're talking about today, as it turns out, because we're in this final week of the sermon series about the ways that God's imagination shows up in black creativity. And over these weeks, you have heard about black love and black art, black worship, and today, black protest to better understand and celebrate the ways that God's particular expression, presence, and voice shows up in the world through black people. One of the most recent and well-known ways that the ongoing struggle for liberation of black people emerged shortly after July 13th, 2013. On that day, the posthumous trial of Trayvon Martin ended, and a verdict of not guilty was delivered on the actions of George Zimmerman, his murderer. Now, full of grief and sorrow, anger and fierce love, Alicia Garza, um, who's there in the middle, posted the phrase, Black Lives Matter, on her Facebook page. Patrice Culler there on the left, put a hashtag on it, and Opal Tometi there on the right, um, developed it further. And what, with that, these three queer black women, experienced artists and organizers, started a network rooted in what Alicia Garza says is an ideological and political intervention in a world where black lives are systematically and intentionally targeted for demise. But in spite of all the rallies, protests, die-ins, and disruptions, Black Lives Matter is less about death than it is about life. It's less about death than it is about life. It's less about resistance than it is about love, actually. A fierce love of black people as a whole, their contributions to society, our humanity, and their tremendous resilience in the face of ongoing, unending, multifaceted, deadly oppression. Black lives matter, which means they're not disposable, dismissible or deniable. And this statement, this affirmation is rooted at the very heart in a love ethic which demands space at the epicenter of our global and spiritual self-mutilation. Our global and spiritual self-mutilation. A love ethic in the face of spiritual self-mutilation. This is what was at work that day when Jesus turned over the tables. He loved his people. He loved the traditions that helped them to come alive and become who they were. He loved it with all of his being. And so when he saw that the ways that the pastors and the elders and leaders of the church weren't just neglecting their jobs but actively harming its people, when he saw how they had disfigured the tradition that they were entrusted to steward, he knew he had to do something. He had to disrupt business as usual, to wake the people up, to get them woke, and so he did. Our passage tells us that it was this incident which got temple leaders thinking seriously about how to get rid of him. It wasn't uh, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's. 
It wasn't um, dining with wealthy people and poor people at the same table. It wasn't restoring um, sight to the blind or bringing a Samaritan woman back into the fold. No, it was this passage that got them thinking, this is a dangerous man. He's not just a loudmouth, fringy radical. He is messing with our hustle at the heart of our money. They no longer wanted to silence him. They wanted to hurt him. Our translation today uses the word destroy, but other passages say kill. And it all points to one thing, right? This was the beginning of his end. His teachings had done something incredibly dangerous. They had unlocked the imaginations of everyone present. Our passage says, the crowd was enthralled with his teaching. Now, there's a reason why the network and message of Black Lives Matter skipped so quickly across borders and oceans. There was something so deeply true that resonated and was so desperately necessary about it that couldn't be contained. And so just as Jesus quickly found himself at the crosshairs um, of, his temple, of the temple leadership, so did Opal Tometi, Alicia Garza, and Patrice Cullors. From every direction, they received arrows, threats, and shame. And not just from non-black people, from black people too. It would have been easy for them and the many leaders of the leaderful movement of Black Lives Matter to become emotionally drained and spiritually exhausted, and many people did. Under these kinds of circumstances, it is easy to burn up, to let your anger and the many and countless death-dealing practices of our systems and structures to turn your energy corrosive. Those among us who maybe um, have lived lives of activism or have engaged very deeply in, um, in these uh, efforts know what I'm talking about. That energy, that fierce love can become toxic if it, there's nowhere to turn it. And it's easy then to let our thoughts turn shadowy and to give ourselves over to the inevitable freedom fighter or radical um, uh, end, which is to haunt ourselves with the dare of asking, well, what am I willing to die for? After all, wasn't that where the protest landed Jesus? It is, if we're only focusing on the first half of the story. But if you look to the second half, you'll see something else. Jesus didn't love so much that he was willing to die, in spite of what some of us in the traditions that we are familiar with might have learned. He loved so much that he was willing to live and to live again. And while the message and work of Black Lives Matter confronts death-dealing systems, it is always shaped by a commitment to life, rooted in deep love, and particularly a deep love for black people. The womanist theologian Dolores Williams invites folks to stop asking, what would I die for, as liberationists doing the work? If we ask that question, she says, somebody might be quite willing to oblige us and kill us. Instead, she says, our question should be, what are we willing to live for? What are you willing to live for? Think about that for a moment. This world is hard and it's heavy. The complex brokenness and generational traumas that many among us have endured and carry in our bodies daily threaten to take us out. And so this question isn't just theoretical, it's real today, right now. What are you willing to live for? 
How is your anger at injustice and oppression rooted in a love ethic? These are the questions that black protest invites us toward, calls us toward, holds us accountable to. And so this is what it means also, as it turns out, to follow and to protest faithfully in the way of Jesus. Let us pray. God, we are thankful for the ways that your imagination shows up among us, through us, around us. We thank you for the gifts of those among us, and particularly um, those gifts among black protesters, the ways that they have found creativity to claim life in the midst of death, to root themselves in a love ethic rather than allow their energy to turn corrosive. I pray protection over all of those activists who are struggling in that fight to, to not give themselves over to the corrosion. We pray protection over their hope. We pray protection over their peace. And we pray the same for ourselves, not only for the work that we are doing right now, but the work that you are preparing us to do to come. Help us to faithfully seek to model your, the protests that your son Jesus modeled for us so long ago. To speak dangerous words that call people awake to invite them into a bigger vision of what this world can be, the world as you envision it to be. We lift all of this up, asking you to bear with us as we sometimes falter in the journey, helping us to stay faithful in our love and our commitment to your vision because of who we are and also maybe sometimes even in spite of who we are. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>